Welcome to Police in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. So I said to her, come on, I'll get you out of here. And then she she was a local girl and she said, we'll go to my auntie. My auntie, well, she got frightened because she'd been in there for quite a while. And then the auntie rang the nuns and the police brought us back. This week, we're honoured to be joined by Gabrielle, a strong Irish woman who has survived industrial schools and Magdalene laundries. There are thankfully so many conversations happening right now about how survivors should be treated, how these aspects of our history should be remembered and what justice for the survivors would look like. In this episode, through listening to Gabrielle, we will open up a conversation about the Garda role in the operation of these institutions. And with the help of Dr. Maeve O'Rourke of NUI Galway, we'll also consider what that role means for future legal responses. Gabrielle, is a smart, charismatic, engaging woman, and it was a genuine pleasure to record with her. I hope we do justice to her story and that it makes you think about some dimensions of this issue that maybe you hadn't considered before. But if I start off, I was born in the mother and baby home in Navan Road, St. Patrick's, and I was there for till I was four. And I remember us all going in a big bus. We were all being transferred to Stilorgan from Navan Road. And I stayed in Stilorgan till I was 12. And as I said, you know, we didn't know any different. That was just our lives the way they were. There was probably a hundred girls and they also had a section for the boys and then they had a nursery. It was such a big place. I mean, they had acres and acres of land. I think it was belonged to the Pilkington family. Uh, it was like a stately home and then the nuns bought it and then they extended it and they kept bringing more children until I was 12 and then they had to shut it down and then it became what it is today. It's called St. Raphael's, which is kind of like a, a normal school college. In just one minute, Gabrielle has told us she was born in a mother and baby home and was there until she was four. We await the publication of the report into mother and baby homes, but there are a great deal of concerns about how these were run, how children were treated, how they were subjected to non-consensual medical experiments, and in particular, the exceptionally high death rate for children and babies, as well as possible adoption to America. From there, Gabrielle moved to St. Philomena's, an industrial school in Stilorgan, which was run by the Daughters of Charity. St. Flaminius was the industrial school. You know, we did we did get hit like everybody else, but it wasn't the worst. It was better than anything I had to go through later in my life. Uh, 
Because when I was 12, Vicky, um, we all had to leave Stilorgan because they were, I think they were selling it or sold it. And then we, there was 32 children left after a, about 100, and there used to be about over 100 girls. Some were sent to America, some were adopted out, some were transferred to other places. But we, there was only, I was 12 and the eldest of the last group of 32 children that were sent to Sandymount, Lakelands, St. Mary's in Lakelands. That was a real culture shock. It was awful. Uh, it was, I, I, I'll always remember, it. it was like three groups and the nuns were really, really strict and they, you went into your group and that's the way you stayed. But again, um, everything was minimal. Um, we, I left school at 15 so I worked in the convent I worked in the nursery for about a year and then when I was 16 I was sent to England because my mum was living in London my mum used to come to Stilorgan to see me once a year okay because she that's where she lived and she got married when I was 12 but that didn't make any difference to my life her life was separate it was only when I was 16 that she wanted me to go to England, not to live with her, but to do a live-in job in London. Yeah. And that's that's what happened to most of the girls when they left. Yeah. We all found domestic work. Because remember, Vicky, we weren't educated. We, we, we were cleaning when we were four and five, scrubbing floors, polishing floors. So we didn't really know any, anything else. We'd done no exams. We barely learned to read and write. And so when you get to England, you must have thought that's all in the past. I'm out of those systems. I was so happy to get out of Ireland. I really was. I mean, I was excited. I remember I had my little case, not very much in there. I got the train over the boat first from Don Leary. And, but there was loads of other Irish people. So, you know, you weren't alone, but I was on my own. And then I got to Houston. Then you automatically just got on the train to Houston and then the nuns that's where the nuns met me to take me to my live-in job where I say I stayed for one year and then when I was 17 went back to Dublin with my mum all because she didn't like the guy you'd started dating yeah that's why and she really but I I don't want to be facetious but I think I was very attractive Mm -hmm. And that was a little bit to do with it. She didn't like me with boys, but yet I was really innocent. Do you know? I used to think, oh, I, you know, you'd be say afraid to hold his hand in case I got pregnant. I mean, it was that stupid, but that's how it was. But the plan was we were going to get married. I was coming back to England to get married after my two weeks with her in Dublin because... They found out that she had a daughter and they found out at this funeral. So everybody wanted to meet me. Mm -hmm. I only met her father and her stepmother. 
but none of the rest of the family. My mum then said to the nuns, if she doesn't behave, do what you like with her. So I thought, oh, I'll get back to England now as soon as I can. And this is, Vicky, where I ended up in the Magdalene Laundry because I was working, looking after the children. And the nuns didn't like, I think I stayed out one night. To, uh, I used to stay out, not every night, but this particular night, I didn't come back. And I just said to the nuns, I'm leaving tomorrow. And the very next day, um, they had the police in the parlour waiting for me and two nuns, the Reverend Mother, and they were just waiting to take me to Shaw McDermott Street in Dublin. Gabrielle's path to the laundry is heartbreaking. Despite being born in a mother and baby home, she did in fact know her mother. And despite growing up in institutions in Ireland, she had left Ireland and worked in England. But even from there, unhappy with who she was dating, her mother forced her back to Ireland, back working for the nuns. And the second she put a foot out of line, the decision was made to send her to a laundry. And the guardy were there in the parlour of the convent to make sure that happened. Why were the guardy in the parlour? Gabrielle had stayed out late. This was not a crime, not of any kind. We'll come back in a separate episode to talk about how still today children in care are more likely to have their actions criminalised than children who grew up with their families. This is absolutely an issue. But there's more to what happened here. This is about the relationship between the church and the state. No wrongdoing had occurred, and yet the Gardaí were in the parlour of the convent, ready to enforce the decision of the nuns to send Gabrielle to the laundry, using their visible presence and authority to make Gabrielle feel like this was not a choice. This was happening, and the church and state were gathered together to make sure it happened. The first important point here is to absolutely acknowledge that Gardaí got involved in delivering girls and women to the laundries. I asked Dr Maeve O'Rourke how frequent this was. I certainly have spoken to a number of women who were returned by the Gardaí to Magdalene Laundries. Um, I'm also in my work with Claire McGettrick as a co-director of the Clan Project, um, which helped people to make witness statements for the ongoing Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation. Uh, returns by the Gardaí to mother and baby homes are also an issue that has come up in witness statements. And it's not just women who were girls who were actually returned by the Gardaí. It's also the fact that other women and girls could see that that was happening. And so we have numerous witness statements where people or oral histories where people speak to having managed to escape. I mean, I've met several women who managed to figure out when the door might be open and get out. But then they're wandering around in their uniform uh, or even if they weren't in the uniform with the haircut or with the boots that were recognisable and were returned. But even if they even if you weren't a girl or woman who did that and got returned, you knew well that that was what could happen to you. And you saw people being returned and you saw people being punished for escaping and then being returned by the Gardaí. A key point to make is that they had no legal basis or powers for doing so. I mean, it's pure terror and just added to that sense that there was absolutely no way out. And the thing to remember about Magdalene Laundries is that what hit me the most when I started to interview women was that they really believed that they would die in there. 
And I think that's really one of the defining features of Magdalene laundries. Now, in some other in baby homes or maybe in all, a certain number of women may have stayed for a very long time, even after their child was taken because they were used as forced unpaid labour. But apart from those kind of small times in a mother and baby home, for example, um, usually the detention was, you know, for a specified amount of time or a shorter amount of time. Whereas in a Magdalene laundry, because there were older women and because you were seeing women dying and of course not receiving a proper funeral, um, there really was a sense in every woman that I have met, every woman, that she would die in there. And my personal belief is that is where um, the torture comes from to a great extent, alongside, of course, the day-to-day um, servitude, forced labour, forms of physical abuse other than that. But the really key thing is that women and girls believe they would never leave and they would die in there. And obviously having the police involved added to that. If a detention is unlawful, as detentions in the laundries invariably were, then Gardaí have no legal basis for taking you there. And their detention of you while they bring you there becomes unlawful. The vast majority of detention in Magdalene laundries was entirely without legal basis. There were some very small um, categories of a legislative basis for detention on remand, for example, in Sean McDermott Street in the 1960 Criminal Justice Act. But beyond a very small pocket of legislative bases for detention, there was no legal basis. And even where there might have initially been a legal basis for detention, we have not seen evidence that there was proper regulation or supervision in the sense that someone who might actually have been put in under legislation was checked on to make sure that their treatment was appropriate and that they were released at the end of that. Um, and, and, and then, as I say, the vast majority, it seems, of girls and women were detained without any legal basis at all. And the Gardaí's involvement, therefore, on a general level, with the Magdalene laundries, very much including cases where girls and women were not even detained legally in the first place, uh, is highly, highly troubling. Presumably they're contributing to everything that happens in the Magdalene laundry, but you could also say that they are possibly kidnapping themselves in their own actions. Now, the McAleese report has a very strange, very strange um, explanation for the arrest of girls and women by Garthi, and it's worth looking at, I think. The Interdepartmental Committee, which is the MacLeese Committee, tells us that there was a standing order in the 1923 Garda Handbook, which read, persons in institution uniform, if persons are noticed to be wandering about in the uniform of institutions, e.g. workhouse inmates, they should be questioned and if they cannot give a satisfactory account of themselves, they should be arrested. And the MacLeese Committee said, having asked Garda headquarters what was the legal basis for this instruction in the 1923 Garda Handbook and its implementation, the Gardaí responded, it may refer to the power of arrest at common law for the larceny of the uniform. This was a regular incident that Gardaí had to deal with and indeed some Garda records show that people have received convictions for larceny of apparel. So we're supposed to accept 
from the MacLeese report that the girls and women from Magdalene Laundries who were arrested while trying to escape were guilty of wearing the uniform or clothes that they were given. So this is obviously not a realistic explanation for there having been any legal basis for these arrests. Um, and the problem with the MacLeese report is that I don't know. I mean, it, it failed to actually evaluate what the women were saying about being locked in, never knowing when they were going to leave, not knowing why they were there, uh, being forced into unpaid labour, being put into solitary confinement, being denied food as punishments. Also, many instances of um, physical assault. And the MacLeese report did not make any findings about any of that being unlawful and yet just repeated without any querying excuses and explanations coming from places like the Gardaí, like this ridiculous one. But I mean, the point is, okay, first of all, stealing a uniform from somewhere where you've been enslaved is not actually possible. Um, So that doesn't actually exist as a reason. Uh, But second of all, like, let's say, for example, they felt they had a reason to arrest someone for anything who had just come out of a Magdalene laundry. They don't have legal basis to put them back in the Magdalene laundry because it's arbitrary detention. So like arresting, having a power to arrest, even if there was one for whatever it is that they felt they could arrest people for, does not inextricably come with a power to arbitrarily then detain someone in a church or an institution and wash your hands and drive away. If they felt these women had committed crimes, then they should have been charged before a judge, tried by their peers and imprisoned in prison if sentenced to imprisonment. There was no guard of power to deliver them anywhere. What Gardaí used instead was their authority, their standing, the power, force and authority that they represent in society to do so. Most of us, when we approach a guard at checkpoint, think, oh, am I doing something wrong? And maybe inherently feel some guilt. Imagine standing in that parlour, how you wouldn't feel like you had a choice but to do what they demanded. And Gardy knew what it meant to bring women to the laundries. Well, I think, you know, we've we've definitely come across testimony now. It's from the son of a guard, but he was a very well-known and, and a long, a long-time guard um, in Cork who speaks about, you know, getting the phone call from the from the nuns and just putting the feet up and saying, let's just put the kettle on there and give that girl a chance to make the boat. So you have, as with any of these abuses in any society, the people who, of course, people knew exactly what was going on and there were some people who did what they could to not participate in it. Um, just like we have the stories of the network of people in Galway who kept their doors, their front and back doors open and kept new shoes and new coats ready for the girls who were running away from the Magdalene Asylum, as it was called, on Forster Street in Galway. The why, or why they did it, is of course part of a complicated relationship between the church and state, one that is particularly strong in Ireland. I'd like to draw attention to some aspects of this from a policing perspective. If we look to the foundation of the state, I contend that there was, in effect, a project undertaken to present post-colonial Ireland as being entirely different from what the British had long caricatured us as. I've argued in my book on the history of policing in Ireland that the guards were central to this, 
as one of the first effectively established entities of the state and essentially one that would be in every single community in the country, they were to be emblematic of the New Ireland. They were pioneers, they were Catholic, they were sportsmen, they spoke Irish. Every Sunday they marched to mass in uniform. Religious paraphernalia was hung in stations. Gardaí went on pilgrimages to Lourdes and even to Rome where they met Mussolini. Being a devout Catholic was part of being a guard in the early decades. But as time goes on, there is also evidence of the influence the church had over the Garda organisation. In early 1961, in the midst of quite a bitter pay dispute, a number of younger Gardaí organised a meeting to discuss this in the Makushla Ballroom on Amiens Street in Dublin. Gardaí are not permitted to unionise, and so 160 Gardaí who attended this meeting were charged with discreditable conduct and 11 organisers were suspended. The Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, intervened, called a meeting with the commissioner and the men were reinstated. In 1983, when Magella Moynihan was charged with misconduct for having a child outside of wedlock, it was again the Archbishop who intervened and ensured she was not dismissed. I'm not aware of any research that goes into great detail on the relationship between the guards and the church, but these incidents certainly show the influence the church had over the Gardaí on all kinds of issues. And we know that allegations of clerical abuse that were made to Gardaí were ignored in so many instances. And now, Gabrielle tells us the Gardaí were instrumental in the operation of the laundries. From the moment Gabrielle arrived in Sean McDermott Street, she's tried to get away. Now, considering, Vicky, that I'd been in England for a year, and to suddenly to be put in a place like the, like Sean McDermott Street, the laundry, was a complete shock. I was screaming. I was, they were saying, get your clothes off. Because they had, they wanted to put me into a uniform. I wouldn't, never ever wore the uniform. I think I was in Shaw McDermott for about six weeks, but I did nothing for the nuns. I would work for them. And I was just always planning my escape, but it was really hard because you look at the walls were high and they, some of them had glass on there. So I used to always be plotting when I was, I was going to get out. Now, they did take me in a taxi to Shawmut Dermistry and I was just dumped there, left there, nothing. And for the next six weeks was hell. I mean, you, I walked into the laundry and all you could see and hear were these old ladies praying, working in the laundry, the big rollers, the sheets. And that's what they did all day praying and doing this then they'd all go and have something to eat and then after an hour back in so the women were working from probably eight in the morning I don't know six or seven in the evening I can't really quite remember but it was the day was really structured around the laundry the work but I refused to do it they, they, they hated me. They didn't like me, the nuns. They, they, said, um, they said I would corrupt an army of soldiers. <laughs> they do. They always say that. 
if she didn't do what she was asked? They would, um, you'd be really punished. Now, in Sean McDermott Street was um, very, very tightly run. So you, you really didn't have much choice but to do a little bit. But most of the time, I'd sit in the yard on a, on a Monday and say, I'm on the ran, I'm not working, like going on strike. Gabrielle is clear that the Guardi were deeply involved. The guys were always there because you knew, and that's why you had to be really, really cute to, to escape. They were there, and that's the idea of the uniform. The uniform meant that the second you got outside the grounds, you could be identified by Gardi as being from the laundry. They knew who to return. She soon tried to escape. After the six weeks, I found a way out. But I took another girl with me that had been in my convent before. She was a lovely girl. All she did, she had a little stutter. And I think once you were different, you were kind of ostracized a bit. So I said to her, come on, I'll get you out of here. So we saw the laundry doors open because they came in every day at two o'clock to collect the laundry. So we charged and as we're running and I'm running and I didn't have the uniform on so I knew that I could get away because the police knew you had the uniform and they would be able to pick you up. That was the idea of that. And I remember getting out, getting away and then she she was a local girl and she said, oh, we'll go to my auntie. My auntie, will." she got frightened because she'd been in there for quite a while and then the auntie rang the nuns and the police brought us back. So whenever girls and women escaped the guardie would return them. Many will say sure that was the time it's how things were we shouldn't judge them by today's standards but We really need to question that acceptance. By returning her, by taking her into their custody for however long it took to return her, the police assumed a duty of care towards her. When the police take anyone into their custody, one of the first questions they must ask is, do I have authority to deprive this person of their liberty? If not, then it is an unlawful detention. Viewed this way, Gardi were not only facilitating the laundries, but were unlawfully detaining all the girls and women they had delivered there. And I use the word delivered here on purpose because it feels like that's how these people were treated, like bread or another load of laundry. They weren't people with rights to liberty and dignity. They were dehumanised workers. I remember when doing research on the Kerry Babies case, I encountered a lot of, ah, sure, that's how things were viewed back then. That case occurred in 1984, I'll never forget the day I was sitting in the National Library and I found a copy of the Garda Code from 1966. The Garda Code is the Garda Bible. It takes all the laws and converts them into a handbook on how to act. They aren't public. Only this one was so old, it was in the library. And in terms of the offence of concealment of birth, that code from 1966 said, a case of concealment of birth requires very delicate handling. Otherwise, much cruelty may be inflicted upon an unfortunate woman who may have secretly given birth to a child and yet may not have committed an offence against the law. 
A Garda should, therefore, act with extreme caution in such a case, so as not to cruelly outrage the feelings of a person innocent of a criminal offence, who may, however, in other respects be unfortunate. And he should also be careful not to do or say anything which might be the cause of serious injury to the woman's health. That's a Garda document from 1966, which says that a woman should be treated with empathy, without cruelty, and which also acknowledges that Garda words alone could cause health problems. There's huge overlap between women who ended up in laundries and those who may have concealed birth. I can't get to the archive right now to see what that code has to say about the laundries. But my point is that the Garda organisation in the 1960s recognised how women should be treated. It is not revisionist to say that they should have respected these women. That's what their own handbook from the time said. But instead, they delivered women to the laundries. And this is in the same decade in which Gabrielle was in the laundry. I should have done a runner, but I didn't. Because I kind of wanted to stay with her. Mm -hmm. And then I was punished. I was told to go to bed, nothing to eat. And the next morning, the nuns from Stilorgan that brought me up, they came to collect me in the morning. And they took me down to Limerick to another Good Shepherd convent. That's where I was put up for two and a half years. Impossible. It was really hard to get out of there. In the end, they let me go because they, they kept promising me for two and a half years, if, if you do this, if you do the, if you behave yourself, they changed my name to Stella. And they said, if you behave yourself, we will let you go. No, to behave yourself was to work in the laundry and do what you're told. But I didn't. So every Monday I'd go on the run. And then they they put me in the lace department, which I, lo I loved making the lace. It was different from everything else. And everything continued. It was church every Sunday. You'd have so many masses because you had Maynooth College. So the priests would come and they'd be practicing and we'd all have to sit in the church and wait for them. I mean, the girls, we used to be fainting and everything. They, they were very cruel, very cruel. Um, Limerick has the worst memories for me. I mean, I, I used to sometimes think I would never go, I would never leave because I thought, well, nobody knows I'm here. My mother knows I'm here. Um, and I'd write lovely letters to my mum and I'd say to her, I'll be really good, please let me go. Um, but they never sent the letters. They used to destroy them. And they did that to loads of women. We'd all think that our letters were going. And then we'd say, oh, I haven't got a letter. And then if the, if I did something, the nun, she'd say to me, and she said to me, she said, you're here because nobody wants you. So you never forget that. No. You know? 
um, she was she was the worst. But uh, in Limerick was again it was all about the laundry and the lace because they were selling the lace to the Americans for coming over. Mm. We even made Preston Kedney's christening robe as well. I I and two other ladies did that. And then we had an American film crew came to film us. And I got a lovely picture of me wearing the veil. I've still got, well, I've got the video of that. But the memories, I, I feel like for the women, maybe over 100 women were there. They've been there for years. It, it, they all had different names. Nobody would talk about their past. Um, and they would just work hard. And I think they felt that, you know, they had a bed, they had somewhere to eat, they had to eat, sleep and eat. And, and that was their day. I know on a Sunday they used to do like um, silly little dances. But that was probably for one hour. And it was always um, kind of like... I think there were sewing classes as well, or embroidery, embroidery, not not sewing. But um, they they were just so cruel. I mean, when I look back, um, the food was not good. Um, some of the women would die. Would you, you'd see them one day and the next day you'd say, well, where is a tractor or where is Mary? Or, and they'd say, oh, oh, she, oh she, she died or, or she's gone. But I know because when they sold off the land, there was, they found women that were buried there as well. Same as in um, Dublin, Hyde Park. And so, how did you get out of there? Um, I think because they kept promising me that if I did this play and that play, that they'd let me go. And I did everything to try and get out because it was hard. I did try and climb the wall. I got so far and fell back. So I got like big scar. That's not a big scar, but I got a scar on, on my leg here. But um, they, I think they they knew that they wanted to see the back of me. Basically, I think, and this is why I feel very lucky that I oh I know two and a half years is a long time, but you know when I look at some of the women, they were there. Some of them were there from nine. They were born in the institutions and they just transferred them there. Some were there 30, 40 years. I got, you know, many, many stories. And I I just feel almost now, I don't think I was lucky, but at least I didn't have, I, I wasn't there for such a long time, but it really affected me so badly. So I think they let me go because they, they'd had enough of me. And uh, the funniest thing, though, Vicky, they said, um, you know, when when the auxiliary, they had like auxiliaries, they were kind of like 
prison wardens where they were the non they kind of worked for that nun in the group and the auxiliary came to my bed in the morning like this and she said Stella get up because it's a big big dormitory and um she said you're going and I thought my heart was like beating so down to the parlor I went and they had my case that had been there for the two and a half years, exactly as I'd left it. But I remember um, I had to change into, because I had to wear the uniform there. And again, it was, I think, always brown. And I put on this blue dress and I loved, God, I loved it, this blue dress. I put, and, I was, and I didn't want to be too happy in case like they changed their mind. And the nun said to me, the one that really hated me, Mother Euphrasie, she did now. She said, do you have anything to say for yourself? And I went, no. I said, I'm glad to be getting now we're here like that. And she said, well, we don't want you back here. <laughs> she said. <laughs> but you see, they were the psychological games they played with you. Mm-hmm. You know, that was to keep you there. I'll never forget it. I got on that train from Limerick up to Dublin. The guards change. I get into Dublin and the nuns are waiting for me again on the platform. (laughs) I knew I was going to a job, which I was, and I was going this time to Mount Carmel Hospital, the private hospital. So the nuns, they must have given them a, a description of me. It's the nuns. So they take me to Mount Carmel again, living in. But at least I'm out and I'm working. And the first thing I saw was one of the girls that had been on the lace with me. She'd been in Limerick for years. Sometimes I think if they didn't like a person, they let you go. If you didn't, do you know, if you didn't let, but I'll always remember then. So that was great to see her. And I I couldn't get over it for a long time, as you know, and I just think, I mean, I'd never drank or anything, even going out with the girls, even after when I got to the convent, I I remember I used to be sick because I'd never drank before. So it was all really, really strange. But the strangest thing for me is um, I'm born and bred in Dublin. My accent is so different than my family because they were all country girls that reared us. So anytime I went out in Dublin and they'd say, where are you from? I'd say, from Dublin. they say, yeah, Jace, you're not from Dublin. They'd never believe me, but I wouldn't tell them that I'd been in the institutions because they kind of people look down on you a bit. Then, but I I sometimes look back and I and I know finally when I left and when I went to the hospital the hospital to work, always in my mind I thought of those women. But I wanted to get as far away from Ireland because I knew, I really always thought they'd get me back. Mm. 
and I came straight to England. Touch wood, life's been good. And then, of course, I, for a long time, you know, Vicky, I couldn't really, I never wanted to go back to Ireland um, until I had this wonderful letter from my family, my mother's family. They'd found out all about me and they all wanted to meet me. That was my best thing ever. So we're all great. We all get it. And then I met my father's family. So I, out of it, I've got um, two sisters and three brothers. So, you know, it kind of life's come okay, but it did take me a long time. I I would have nightmares, and I think. I'm back. Even now, occasionally I get the dream that I'm running and I'm trying to get away. Walking down the street, you must have just been like, are they going to come and get me? And Yeah, you know, you know, when I came out and I'd see a nun, I'd scoot across the road just in case. There are a number of questions about what happens next. There have been a number of inquiries and commissions in this space. A lot of women have shared their experiences. Some small amounts of compensation have been paid. There have not, as far as we know, been any criminal investigations, and Maeve explained why. After the MacLeese report was published, and that is in 2013, and until the present day, members of government and civil servants, particularly in the Department of Justice, have taken this up. They've taken up the fact that there were no findings of, I mean, no findings of criminal wrongdoing or suspected or apparent criminal wrongdoing, no findings of constitutional rights violations, no findings of European Convention on Human Rights Violations. And they've taken that from the MacLeese Report. And they have then said at every possible opportunity in public, on the Dole record, as civil servants to the UN, as civil servants in response to the Ombudsman saying you're not implementing the Magdalene Scheme in the spirit in which it was intended, they have said there is no credible evidence that systematic ill-treatment of a criminal nature occurred in the Magdalene Laundries. No credible evidence. That is one of their repeated lines. Um, And they say if there was evidence, we'd be investigating it and we invite anybody who wishes to take a criminal complaint to the guards. But we have actually investigated the Magdalene Laundries and we have found that there is no factual evidence to support allegations of systematic ill-treatment of a criminal nature in these institutions. So we have this crazy, illogical argument that is the state's defence to the present day. We would investigate criminal abuse if there was any to find, and there is no criminal abuse to find, as is evident by the fact that we are not investigating criminal abuse. So let's try unpacking what might be legally required to happen. Firstly, should there be a criminal investigation into what happened in these institutions? Women were unlawfully detained, exploited, abused, and children were illegally adopted, subjected to medical experimentation, and died. Should we not uphold the criminal law on this? Yes, of course, we need, and it's beyond time for a dedicated criminal investigations unit and for public calls for evidence. I mean, a massive problem with the Ryan Commission, for example, and the Mother and Baby Homes Commission that has just finished its report is um, certainly the Mother and Baby Homes Commission, its underpinning legislation explicitly says 
in Section 19 that all evidence gathered cannot be used in criminal or civil proceedings. And we know from the Department of Justice's statements to UN bodies that the Ryan Commission did not give the evidence it gathered to the Gardaí. And my understanding is, from speaking to several people who have approached the guards about their complaints of criminal abuse in institutions, is that they have been sent on their way to these kinds of investigations, like oh no, there's a Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation going on, go there with your complaint. But that's not right because the Gardaí cannot rely on those inquiries because those inquiries are not giving their evidence to the Gardaí. So the Gardaí need to be doing their own investigations. Indeed, what I would expect is that if you went to make a complaint about something that a commission existed on, they should start the investigation and it may then be paused pending the outcome. But even that's debatable with the commission's findings having no legal consequences. One might argue it's too late, that there'll be no evidence, people will have died. That's prejudging the investigation. The Gardaí should make all reasonable efforts to investigate an alleged crime, and then it's for the DPP to decide whether there is sufficient evidence to merit a prosecution. And there has to be a proper effort to undertake criminal investigations and prosecutions because um, allowing impunity to reign is simply a complete violation of people's human dignity and just says that like you you're not really a, a a victim like everybody else in our society and if something this egregious happens to you well we just have to let it go for the greater good this isn't just for these women though under the victims of crime act any person who reports a crime is entitled to an effective investigation we all want to live in a state where crime is investigated a function of the guardie is to investigate crime I do not see how a decision can be taken to simply not investigate a whole tranche of crimes of kidnapping, exploitation, slavery, trafficking, neglect, abuse and even homicide. What justification is there for not investigating this? Who benefits? Second, should there be an investigation into the Garda actions as well as other state agencies? And do you think the guards should investigate those deaths? I do, I do. But don't you remember when Hyde Park, when they, when the 133 women, they got away with it. They get away with everything because their power, they're connected with the church, the police. They all, they were, they really were like a Gestapo. But behind the scenes, they were living the high life. They were having the best of everything, whereas the women, that, uh, and me included, you got, I think, Irish stew every day. Slop. We used to say slop time. It, it was just shocking the way that the nuns treated the women. So you have, yeah, those individualised stories of people who did what they could and we have to ask and this is why we need to engage in proper uh, comprehensive and open truth telling today because we have to get to the bottom of how it is that everybody can know something is wrong that some people in positions of authority can do whatever it is that they can do in a moment to try and avoid the system being implemented but the system continues what does it take to call a halt to something that everybody knows is so wrong. If the Gardaí commit a crimes or breach their own codes of conduct, they should be investigated. 
The complicating factor is who should do these investigations. It may well require the involvement of GSOC or perhaps even joint Garda GSOC teams because it may at times be very hard to segregate the Garda wrongdoing from the other crimes being investigated. Third, in relation to any deaths that occurred on these sites of women or children, there are obligations on the state under Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights to have an effective investigation, especially where there are concerns that the state may have been involved in the death. Further, under our coroner's legislation, if a coroner suspects that any of these deaths were unnatural, then they must investigate and possibly hold an inquest. There's no statute of limitations on inquests. In January, fresh inquests for the Stardust deaths will commence. The purpose of the inquest is to determine who died, when, where and how. For families, being even able to physically state what the cause of death was will be immense. As a society, we need to know this too. And to acknowledge whether or not these were unlawful killings, which the inquest can also do. But on the other hand, we have a deeply inadequate inquest system. And one of the most striking parts of it is the substantial role that Gardaí play in it. Outside of Dublin, Gardaí gather and present the evidence at the inquest, acting as the coroner's officer. They also handpick the jury. One might question the propriety of having Gardaí involved in that way in the investigations of deaths at institutions they enabled. So the state is left with the question of how it ensures it fulfills its obligations to have effective investigations. These are obligations on the state. They will be in breach of convention law if they do not find an effective transparent mechanism that satisfies all the ECHR requirements. Gabrielle is very clear how this part of history, including the guard involvement, should be remembered. My biggest thing I've always said to Catherine um, Jamaica and Claire would be to see a monument for the women that no amount of money makes any difference to me but I would love to see that monument and I'd like to see Sean McDermott Street as a like a museum mm. a little memorial garden because I don't care what anybody says I'm sure there's bodies there, as they found in every other laundry. That is my, my gut feeling. And I have other friends who think the same. As you say, the very least we as a state can do is you know, build that statue, have that archive, commemorate, acknowledge and say, hold up your pain and say, we did this to people. And we will remember that and not do it again. I had a lovely one, Vicky, in my mind. and Because I, I love art. I'm always doing arty things. And I had this vision of a mother just holding her baby as the symbol for the Magdalene women. Because if you look back years ago, all these women were going missing. They were in the Magdalene laundry. It was a slave trade, but they got away with it. This may be our past, but how we deal with it is our present and our future.
we haven't even begun to comply with the basic requirements of accountability in relation to all of these so-called historical abuses in Ireland. And it's something that, and so we haven't even begun to have those conversations. It's something, uh, the lack of accountability is something that um, the late Sir Professor Nigel Rodley, as chair of the UN Human Rights Committee in 2014 in Geneva, just like could not do enough to highlight. He was chair of this um, procedure where Ireland was being reviewed as part of the periodic review process under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So every number of years we go and a whole load of civil servants go with the minister and they explain how well Ireland is doing under the ICCPR. And then the Independent Committee of Experts asks questions and is basing a lot of its questions on what NGOs are telling them is actually the case about the gaps in human rights protection. And so this um, this process in 2014 was concerned with the whole range of human rights violations in Ireland. But what was so significant was at the end of the two days, Nigel Rodney is chair, um, and he at the time was a professor of human rights in the University of Essex, I think. Um, he just essentially like downed tools, like everything down and like, Right. To conclude, essentially, this session, I need to talk to you about your history of gender related, church related, institutional abuses. And I take the point that the state is trying to do its best or do. I mean, he said, I don't want to pour cold water on the state's efforts to give some financial redress to people. But I have not heard one single word about accountability. I don't see it anywhere. Accountability for what happened, for the wrongs that were done, essentially like actually looking at wrongdoing rather than just being sorry that people are sad and trying to give them some money so that they stop, you know, saying that, you know, so that they, so essentially they just stop, I mean, complaining. The state's response has been one of seeking to find material responses to the needs of the victims. And I don't want to pour cold water on that. Uh, however, there remains the problem of accountability, the accountability for assault and worse uh, in all of these. The issue that remains for the state party to consider is what it is going to do about accountability. Accountability for its own responsibilities, accountability for its failures to monitor what others have been doing, and the accountability of others for committing uh, abuses uh, that the uh, state might well be able to think of as crimes. Uh, and. The accountability dimension is missing in everything we've heard so far. And if we can't do it, what does that say about our ability to do it like in the future either? If things are so serious and hitting us in the face, if like it could not be more serious, what happened in Magdalene Laundries and Mother and Baby Homes and through forced adoption and in industrial schools, this was torture. This was enforced disappearance. This was gross and systematic uh, arbitrary detention and like I say, you, you and, and ex medical experimentation without consent, 
Um, and that goes for, you know, the seriousness from a criminal justice perspective, from a civil justice perspective and from a national education and truth telling perspective. You could not get more serious. And if we are incapable of recognising that and responding to it with our so-called democratic institutions that already exist and structures, then we are in big trouble in terms of being able to protect from human rights violations today. And we have to question whether our children today are being protected if we are actually incapable of accepting that what happened in the 20th century right up until the end of the 20th century where the people are here today telling us how serious it was and that they want justice because they want it not to happen again and if we are ignoring it like what does that say about us now it's it's absolutely connected to the future and the reason people come forward the reason they speak the reason they want prosecutions or civil justice or national education is actually to make sure it doesn't happen again. It is not about wanting money, wanting to drag people through the mud, whatever it is that survivors are so often accused of wanting. What they It is not any of those things. It is to make sure that it doesn't happen again and that someone is actually found to have done wrong so that we actually are capable of knowing what is wrong and what is right in Irish society. But I'm okay. I'm okay like to talk about it because we we just hope it could never ever happen again. But but when you think about it, Vicky, it was a crime women against women. Mm. It was women that were but the police knew this was going on and they were always on hand to bring them girls back. Yeah. That's the point. I mean... Church and state. I wish now, Vicky, that I would have sued them for my two and a half years incarceration. Never take the compensation, the piddly compensation that they gave us. They gave you that to shut you up. Once you took that money, that was it. You would have been far better off taking them, taking Ireland to court for for my loss of freedom. But, you know, when you go back 20, 30 years, um, we all did the redress. We all did all of that. But I think that was probably the downfall of a lot. A number of years ago, I sat in Mansion House and helped to facilitate the recording of oral histories of survivors of the laundries during the Dublin Honours Magdalen event. I'm quite sure it will remain embedded as the most humbling of experiences in my life, as well as one of the most soul-destroying. But listening to Gabrielle, her spirit, her empathy, her resilience can do nothing but lift you. It's so important that we do right by these women, that we don't bury the ugly parts of our history. For me, that involves not blaming this all on the church, but acknowledging and owning all the ways the state were involved, including on Garda Síochána because involved they were. In the coming months, the report on mother and baby homes will be released and there will be debates about how to respond. Please remember, Gabrielle, when you listen to or participate in those debates. Thank you, Gabrielle. Thank you to everyone involved in Justice for Magdalene and to May for giving her time. Thanks Tony and Brian for their essential work on the production of Policed in Ireland. 
Next week, we'll be exploring further the issue of young people in care and how easily criminalised their lives become in spite of all the trauma they have endured to date. Please support the show by rating us wherever you listen and by sharing these stories with your friends. You can follow us on Twitter at Policed Podcast. To contribute to the continuation of this work, you can donate the price of a cup of coffee a month at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. <laughs>